Isaiah chapter 9, one of the reasons that, uh, two reasons really, that, uh, that I went ahead and jumped on this passage for this, and this will be our, our, uh, our Christmas, and you know, typically I, I don't give um, uh, holiday messages, but, um, but I, two reasons. The first one was this, um, about Monday, uh, years ago, I was able to be uh, in a choir uh, at our church. Yes, they'll allow anybody to be in the choir. Uh, it's part of the deal of a volunteer choir. The, the choir director has to take everybody that raises their hand. Um, but I was walking through the house and I was singing Handel's Messiah. I don't know how many of you guys are familiar with that, uh, with Handel's Messiah. But, um, but we had a very entertaining, a very loving, uh, I was telling Angela, just reflecting on George Baker, who was uh, our music minister. And he was just, oh, he just got so excited. He was, he was an old guy up there and he just gets so excited and wiggle his little body around do the stomp when we were to come in and uh, so I have fond memories of that so I started singing that song and then um, later on in the week I started uh, being on the radio stuff like that listening on the radio I started hearing people talk about Christmas and what Christmas means the meaning of Christmas and uh, it just it seemed like person after person was completely missing the mark um, on it Um, one person and this is uh, it was really at this point when I heard this person say um, they basically said, you know, Christmas is about new beginnings. It's about new beginnings, whether it be with, you know, health or relationships, finances, um, you know, uh, spiritual things. You know, it's really just about new beginnings. And, and I thought, you know, those things are all well and good, but that has absolutely nothing to do um, with Christmas. And, you know, we, we live in an interesting time today. Um, it was in 336 A.D., uh, the church actually went for about 300 years. It wasn't until 336 AD that we see recorded uh, for the first time the celebration of what we know as Christmas on December 25th. Um, and at that particular point, now you guys know enough of your biblical history, what else is happening at that time in the church right around the beginning of that 4th century or the, the early 300? What else was, was transpiring in the church? Or say a name. <laughs> Constantine. And, um, and this is where the emperor of Rome, Constantine, basically um, uh, Christianity was a persecuted re- religion up to that point. But basically what he's going to do is he's going to make Christianity the official state religion. And any time that anything's made an official state something, um, it's going to go into to a terrible amount of corruption. And that's where Constantine's mom started building uh, the chapels and the worship centers and it's where we start seeing um, uh, just a lot of uh, pagan influence come into the church. We see the hierarchy structure built within the church. We see a lot of wealth come into the church because now the state is actually supporting the, is supporting the church with financial resources. Um, you start seeing people jockeying for positions. You start seeing power come into the church, control, wealth. Um, all of that uh, begins to happen at that particular time. But we actually don't see the first Christmas uh, being celebrated till 300 years um, uh, after, uh, after the beginning of the church. And I think the church was probably better off those first 300 years um, than after. Uh, we just, you know, we get so caught up in, in the tree and the presence. And, you know, I think most people that I know, their heart's in a really good place. Um, I love to give. And I, as I look across the room here, um, I, I'm looking at people um, that really, that uh, for the most part, you guys love to give things to people. And I tell people that 
Um, you know, when I would buy things for Angela early on, uh, whether it be for a birthday or Christmas or, or anything else, I always had such a hard time hanging on to it till the day of celebration because when I have something for somebody, I get so excited about it. Um, and uh, you know somebody like this, right? And uh, just get so excited and I'm just like, you know, well, here you, you know, here, here you go, kind of a deal, and maybe three or four days early. Or you come across something, you know, maybe you bought them a scarf and then, you know, three days before the event, you're going down to Silver Dollar City and it's going to be cold and they need a scarf and you're like, hey, this would work out great for you kind of a deal. Um, But I think that the idea of giving, I think that that's a great thing. Um, And I think even, you know, the church never even in uh, really the Jewish culture never worshiped the the birth of people. They didn't celebrate birthdays. They they may commemorate the death of somebody of a great leader or something like that. But really, we don't even see the idea of celebrating a birth come into really just until that time that, you know, they decided let's go ahead um, and, uh, and worship the birth of Jesus. And you may have a lot of different ideas about what, what Christmas is. A lot of people, um, a lot of well-meaning people, I think they basically come down to the idea that the um, uh, Christmas is about the birth of Jesus. And, um, and it does include that, but it's so much broader than that. So much broader than that. I would like to go ahead and, and, and maybe just lay out the case that what Christmas is really about is about how God is going to pay the penalty for man's sins. That man has a sin issue. And see, what's interesting to me about Christmas is we don't typically think of our sin during Christmas time. We typically don't think of the word Messiah during Christmas time. We don't typically think about the crucifixion and the death that is going to be required during Christmas time. Because we're focused, well, we kind of just get focused on the celebration. And I want to say this, I, I think that the, that the true understanding of Christmas and the holiday of Christmas, I think those things are, are, are on different ends of the spectrum there. Do you guys agree with that? Um, and so as we get to, to Isaiah chapter 9 here, we're going to spend some time just in this one verse. And yes, I'm going to stretch this out to 35 or 40 minutes. But we're going to spend some time here because each line on this is just, to me, has really just helped give me another level of understanding of what this is all about. So, Carrie, let's go ahead and throw up. And Carrie's being so kind, she's going to listen to this message a second time because we have about 14 or 15 uh, PowerPoints here. And so she's going to be kind enough to stay back there for us and and do this all a second time. I want to just go ahead and read this to you. Um, this verse, and, and it tells us this, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I do want to go ahead and let you know that your translation may have Wonderful, comma, Counselor, um, and, uh, and kind of the, the more contemporary translations are actually putting that together as, as one word because we see two, 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 and two. Um, and it may have just been the structure that he was writing maybe to help uh, with memorization. But either way, uh, we're going to be discussing what both of those words are individually and then uh, what it would mean together for us. The first part that we want to go ahead and spend some time on is that very first section right there that says, For unto us a child is born. And if you're taking notes, I want you to note that what this is talking about, this is man's view of things. And isn't that where we're at? Isn't that what Christmas you know, today is? You know, hey, baby Jesus is born. And this is man's view. But I need you to understand, when we talk to you about a child being born, we're talking about humanity. 
And we're talking about the humanity of the Messiah. Now let me give you just a little bit of background information about what's happening here in the book of of Isaiah. This is being written um, about 740 BC. So this is all, this is what this is speaking of here is happening about 740 years um, before Jesus comes on the scene. Um, by the way, uh, maybe as a Christmas break, I would encourage you to go ahead and just look online, um, all of the prophecies in the book of Isaiah and the book of Isaiah is actually known going all the way back to, to the fourth century, um, going all the way back. It is, it was known as the fifth gospel. You guys ever heard that? We know of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but the book of Isaiah was actually known and referred to as the fifth gospel going all the way back, right? Uh, to the fourth century. And the reason being is because it has so much prophecy in it about the Messiah. And this is how when you study through the word of God, now somebody may say, ah, I just don't believe all that stuff. Well, when you're reading a book that is written 740 years before Jesus's life occurs, and then you, then you study through the life of Jesus and you say, wow, the life that Jesus was living and thing that he was doing, you know, this, the prophecy has been fulfilled in his life. And isn't that what Jesus was always saying? He was always saying, look at your scripture and see if, if, if I reflect, if, see if I am the embodiment or the fulfillment of what Isaiah was writing about you and, of course, other prophets as well. So as we look at this, um, by the way, just to kind of let you know, chapter 6 has one, and, and there's more than this, but as far as prophecies go, um, chapter 6 has one, chapter 7 has two, chapter 9 has two, chapter 11 has one, chapter 40 has one, chapter 50 has one, chapter 53 has five, and 61 has one, right? And so uh, you can go through and kind of just study and, and glean through um, all the goodness. Now, what's interesting about Isaiah is it's going to talk all the way from his birth, all the way to his crucifixion, right? Uh, we're going to see the life of Jesus really seen there in prophecy in the book of Isaiah. And it may not be laid out just like this. It might be jumping all over the place, but you'll be able to put that picture together. So a child is born, and this is speaking about the humanity of the Messiah. Now, this verse is uh, 6 and 7 and then on, on down here. Um, this is speaking about the Messiah. Now, a Messiah simply means, uh, it just means anointed one. Um, in, um, in Greek, it would be the Christos, or we would know it as Christ. And it just means anointed, the one whom God has chosen. Uh, prophets, priests, and kings were always anointed in Scripture, right? Remember little boy David uh, was anointed by Samuel there. Um, and the priests were always anointed. And so the Messiah is going to be the one whom God has chosen. Uh, nowhere in the Old Testament does it say that his name is going to be Jesus. Um, but... What does the name, we just talked about what a beautiful name it is, and we're going to be talking about attributes of, that, of the names of Jesus, but what does Jesus mean, right? Jehovah, God is salvation, right? God is salvation, and that's what the name of Jesus means. What a beautiful name that God is going to save man. As you guys understand, as we've been going through, and I've been spending a little bit more time on Tuesday night, kind of the six stages of the Bible, and, and uh, once you have these six things down, you can actually explain the Bible from beginning to end. And, and the first stage that we saw was creation in Genesis 1.1, and it says that there's a creator that is over all of this. That makes us the creation. That means that we have an authority over our lives. That means that we have a responsibility for the lives that we live. We have to give an account for our lives. The second thing was this was Genesis chapter 3, talking about the sin of mankind, right? Eve was deceived by the serpent. Adam followed on in sin. He just, he just you know, went full-fledged full into all of it. And then the third step in that was we saw the first covenant, and that was the first covenant law. 
And what the law did, the law is very, very good. It's holy, it's pure, it's the heart of the Father. And it tells us what is required to be in a right right relationship with God. Now, the Jews extrapolated or pulled out 613 commands. Could you imagine trying to live a life of obeying 613 commands? Um, I think the point is, is that it would be impossible. And that's what the law shows us, is that we're in our sin state, right? Uh, the number two there, we got our sin, we've got our sin issue. Everybody's sinful. But the, the first covenant, all God, the covenants made between God and man, and God says, this is what is required to be in a right relationship with me. And what the law shows us is that we're broken and that we're sinful, right? The law has no power in and of itself to save us. The law is good. The law is holy. The law is pure. But it has no power to save us. The best it does is it points us towards relying on someone else, and that someone else is God. The second covenant is going to come along. And the second covenant, what we know is the, the New Testament or the New Covenant, and that's going to be a new agreement, right? Now we are already on step number four in all of this. And the new agreement that's going to be made, and believe me, all this is going to fold into the message here, the new agreement that is established is between what two parties? Does anybody remember? God the, God the Father and God the Son. Who's excluded? We're excluded from, from attaining or maintaining that agreement. Is that good news to you? Yeah, that's gospel there. And we say, hey, it's gospel. Gospel means what? Gospel means good news. And so we have now this situation. We have this good news. But remember that agreement, what happened was you had God and you had man, but there was something that was keeping man from being in a relationship with God. And what was that? Sin. We say that sin does what? Sin separates us from God. Jesus is going to come in. Here's God. Here's man. Jesus is going to come right in the middle. His, uh, uh, the term that we would use for a person who comes in between two parties is a what? Is a mediator. And he's going to solve that which separates man from God. What's that again? Sin. And how's he going to solve our sin problem? He's going to solve our sin problem by dying himself, taking the penalty on for our sin right? But here's the deal. Can God die? Can God the Son die? He can't, right? Right? But what if he becomes Emmanuel? What if he becomes God with us? And that's exactly what it's saying right there. Sorry, I keep pointing like that. When I point like that, you guys understand I'm pointing up high there. Uh, For unto us a child is born. And what that's saying is this, God, mankind, is having a child born to them. This child is not just any child. Well, this child is much like Moses' mother. Remember Moses' mother when she looked at Moses and she said, this is no ordinary child, right? This is no ordinary child, but this child is now born to us. And what that's saying is this, it's speaking of the Messiah's humanity, that if God is going to save men... Man can't do it. And the only way that man can be saved is if there is a man who is righteous, who is holy, who is pure, who is without sin, can die for all of mankind's sin. Scripture would tell us this. I think we may see this verse here in a few moments, but it tells us this, that through the death of one man, sorry, through the sin of one man, all became sinners. But through the obedience, obedience of one man, all can be made righteous. Get the point. Adam messed it up for how many people? For everybody. His one act messed it up for who? Everybody. Jesus' one act of righteousness, obedience by dying on the cross for us, how many people can he save? 
He can save absolutely everybody, right? One act of disobedience brought sin. One act of obedience brings eternal life, but has to be of like kind. It has to be of the flesh. God can't die, but what happens when he puts on flesh, right? That sacrifice can now be made. And that's what we're seeing there. For unto us a child is born. This isn't just, this isn't just you know, Hollywood fantasy going on here. This is that the only way for God to save us is it had to be someone in flesh. Now, why a baby? For unto us a child is born. Why, why a baby? Why couldn't he just, you know, praying Jesus is 30 years old, Jesus starts his preaching ministry? Well, I think there's a lot that's tied up into all of this. But, but whenever I look at this, I think a child or a baby so that his whole life can be inspected. Everything about him can be inspected. Do you remember that the Jews, whenever they would, um, at uh, Passover, they would choose a lamb at the beginning of the week, and, but they wouldn't sacrifice it till the end of the week. And what did they do for all of those days with that lamb that they had purchased? They, well, more, speci- more specifically, they inspected that animal for all those days to make sure that it wasn't sickly, that it was without flaw, Right? By the way, Passover happened at the end of the week there. At the beginning of the week, Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a colt riding on the foal of a donkey. And what was the purpose for that? For that week, what are they doing? They're inspecting the Lamb of God to see if he is pure or not, right? There's the picture. It all just comes together right there. I think that the reason why a baby is so that we could look at his whole life and that somebody couldn't just say, well, he just showed up on the scene last week. Nobody's ever seen this guy before. Now he's talking about salvation and so forth. But they've seen him his whole life, right? Even from a little boy, they saw him growing up. Remember, even his hometown had a hard time accepting who he was because they're like, where did he get these things from? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Yeah, where are they? You know? And they had a hard time and it said that he couldn't do very many miracles there because of their what? Because of their unbelief. They, they had a hard time accepting who he was because they couldn't see him as a savior because all they could do is see him um, as that little boy. Um, I also like this. Hebrews 5 tells us that he learned obedience. He learned obedience. It wasn't something that was just, you know, Jesus was just like, you know, praying, you know, he's a little boy running around at six years old and he's like, you know, I am perfection kind of a deal. Um, but he had to learn obedience. Hebrews chapters 4 and 5 tells us that he, has, he is now able to empathize with us. Because the children were flesh and blood. He too shared in our humanity so that by his death he may taste death for everyone. Um, by his humanity he has done that. Um, and then the, the final point with all of this is that he has to be able to die. And that's why, that's why he comes in the flesh like us, like humanity, to be able to die in our place. So in order for mankind to be saved, somebody has to die in our place, right? Scripture says that where there's sin, right, the only way that sin can be atoned for is with blood, right? There's got to be a sacrifice. And we see that first sacrifice there in Genesis 3 um, in the garden. But this, once again, he is no ordinary baby, no ordinary child. So if, I want you to note, if you're taking note, uh, notes on this uh, section right here, this child is born, I want you to note that this is talking about that he's fully man. And because he's fully man, it makes him capable of dying for our sins. If he's not fully man, he can't die for our sins. An angel, 
can't die for our sins. God can't say, hey, I got plenty of these angels. Just take Lenny the angel over here. Let's go ahead and sacrifice him. doesn't work like that. Because he's fully man, he's capable of dying for our sins. Let's look at a couple verses here. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9 says this, But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered what? Death. It's on the screen right here, guys. So that by the grace of God, I know we're getting fancy here, Robbie. So that by the grace of God, he might taste what? Death for everyone. Philippians 2.8 tells us this. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to what? Death. See the concept? Man and death. Even death on a cross. The next one's Colossians 1, 21 and 22. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, sinful. But now he has reconciled you. He's paid your account by Christ's physical body through what? Death to present you holy. Holy means what? Without blemish, right? Just like Jesus and free from accusation, meaning that the great accuser, who's our great accuser? Satan's the great accuser, right? Um, And that there's nothing that he can accuse us uh, of being unworthy to be in the presence of God. Next one is 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And he became the sacrifice, his sacrifice, his self-sacrifice for the poor has made those poor wealthy in the kingdom of God and in the sphere of God. And you can read about Ephesians chapter 1. Note Ephesians 1 right there. And you can read all Paul writes about. Not everything. Paul goes on and on and on. Just about how great we, what we have been given um, because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So as we go back to that, um, that chapter 9 verse 3 of Isaiah there. It tells us this. So the first one is, for unto us a child is born. And what are we talking about there? His... Humanity, right? Um, The second phrase now says, unto us a son is given. Now, the first part I said that a child, for unto us a child is born. That's man's viewpoint, right? And that's what we have, all the nativity scenes, and that's what we're looking at. Now, the second uh, phrase there is heaven's viewpoint of all of this. And I still have to say, I think the angels are like, what? When God the Son, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. When God the Son comes down and he's wrapped in flesh, that this is heaven looking down and heaven is giving its Son. God is giving his Son, right? One third of the Trinity. God is giving up a portion of the Trinity to come down and dwell with man. And this is fully God. This section right here is about him being fully God. And this also means that he's sinless. Can God sin? Can man sin? Is all man sin sinful? Yeah. But he's fully God. And what that means is he's sinless, which means he's going to make for the perfect sacrifice. Remember the Jews, when they offered the animal, they had to give one without blemish. Just going way back to, uh, to Moses and the sacrificial system and so forth. They couldn't bring the one that was mostly dead or three-legged or one eye or had, you know, bot flies in it or anything like that. Uh, you know, the, the wolves had chewed on it and it was only going to live another week. Um, it had to be that without spot or blemish. And this is where the key comes in. 
Now we have that which is perfect and holy and true, now wrapped in flesh. Now can a sacrifice for the sins of man be made? Yeah, because now we have one who has not sinned, but has lived a life in this sinful world. Does that make sense? Now the scene is ready. Everything's primed. Now we have the proper individual for the sacrifice of the sins of men. When I think about Christmas, this is what I'm thinking about now. I'm not just thinking about, you know, some kid being, you know, born in a manger and so forth, right? Haven't we, by the way, just a side note for a second. We have just completely messed up even the birth of Jesus, haven't we? Right? Um, You know, we got the three wise men. We don't know how many there were. We just know that there were three gifts, right? And then we have the wise men showing up at his birth when they didn't show up till Jesus was probably two or three years old, right? And they did bring him gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and so forth. But even the basics of all of this, we've completely messed up. And I think that, you know, we were just talking a few weeks ago that Jesus says, um, you will honor your traditions while breaking the law of God, right? You'll honor your traditions instead of putting the word of God first in your life. And I want to encourage you guys that when you think about this concept of Christmas, put the word of God first in your life and put this concept of this holiday of Christmas way, 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 way back. Can you still celebrate it? Yeah, but it needs to be way, 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 way back from what this is really all about. We've already seen two things. This is, he is fully man and fully God. And because of that now, he is capable of dying for our sin. So, so here's a question. Can I believe in his humanity, but not his divinity? Can I believe that he was a good man who came and taught good things and to show us how to live a good life, which is what a lot of people say. Jesus came to show us how to good, live a good life. Can I just believe that he was a good person, but not believe that he was divine, that he was God? And you know what? If you want to believe that, you can. But if you, if you do choose to believe that, what's happening is this. Nothing has been done with your sin. You now have to give an account. You now have to pay for your sin. Start paying. And will it ever be enough? It'll never be enough. But if he is fully man and if he is fully God, he now is capable to die for our sin and the sin issue has been resolved in him. Divine leads us to the concept of sinless. And a savior always saves people from something. We need it. Mankind needs a savior, guys. Mankind doesn't need need the the concept of, 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 of church, maybe how we see it today. Um, it doesn't need the, you know, the, the automation that goes on, you know, and, and so forth and the things that we do. But what mankind needs is a savior. And mankind accepts that savior and walks forward with that savior. They're walking forward in a new life with him, right? Um, and that's always what scripture is encouraging us to is to walk fully in this new life with him. So if the divine equals sinless... And now this Savior has come to save us from something. If you take away the divine and you take away the sinlessness of the Messiah, well, then we're back at stage one and we're all hopeless once again. If the Messiah has one sin, he can't die for us anymore. He now needs somebody to die for him. Does that make sense? And that's what for those years that Jesus lived... They could not find anything wrong, even at his trial, right before he's crucified. They brought people up to say lies about him. 
And he was so clean. He was so divine that the lies couldn't even stick, right? We see lies today stick all the time, right, that people say. But even to Jesus, the lies couldn't stick. Let's look at a couple, at a couple verses here. Uh, John eight twenty two and 23. But he continued, and this is Jesus talking about that he is divine, that he's God. By the way, well, you are from below, he told them, speaking this to the Pharisees. I am from above. You are from this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he. You will indeed die in your sins. And what Jesus is saying right here is this. If you, if you deny that I am divine, if you deny that I am God, you will die in your sins because he's the only one that can die for their sins. Remember the, the Jews of that day, they thought that they could take, especially the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they thought, well, Sadducees don't believe in an afterlife, but the Pharisees, they believed um, that you know, their good works and the obedience to the law was going to save them. But remember time after time when Jesus starts talking to them, when they bring the woman who was caught in adultery, oops, forgot to bring the man, just the woman, right? What do you say, Jesus? Law of Moses says stoner. What do you say? And what's he say? If you're without sin, what? Cast the first stone. From the oldest to the youngest, they walked away. Did they know they had sin? Yeah. But they were allowing their religion to give them some kind of a comfort there. And Jesus is just trying to say, you got to set all of this junk aside. And you have to understand, I'm God that's standing right before you. They were so afraid back in the days of Moses at Mount Sinai when God spoke down to them. And they're like, Moses, if we hear God's voice anymore, we'll surely die. Go, You go up there. And they chose Moses. You go up there. We're afraid we're going to die, right? And here comes dad. Here comes dad. Here comes God. Here comes God standing right before them, Jesus. Jesus told his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen what? Yeah. Hebrews tells us that the radiance, the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. John in John chapter one proclaims him to be God. By the way, just a side note for you guys, the book of Luke, each one of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew is Jesus is king. He's the Messiah. Um, uh, Mark, G, uh, Jesus is the, uh, is the suffering servant. Luke, the key there is he's the son of man. And that's the phrase you'll see over and over again in the gospel. Luke, son of man, son of man, son of man, son of man. You get to the book of John and it changes to what? Son of God, son of God, son of God. Luke writes from the perspective of Jesus being fully human John writes from the perspective that Jesus is fully God. Isn't that amazing? It's like God knew how to just like interweave all of this. I don't think man's smart enough to be able to contrive and put all this together on his own. It's just amazing how it's all just sewn, all sewn in and through there. Do we have that John 641? John 838. And it says this, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Now these John chapter eight passages, this is the great, this is the the bread of life. This is, I am the bread of life, right? And he's talking about that he is the true bread that comes down from heaven. In the wilderness, the manna came down, but did the people die once they partook of it? Of the manna? I mean, 
sooner or later did they die? Yeah. Um, yeah, it did not give them eternal life. But what about Jesus is saying, I am the true bread from heaven. And whoever partakes of me, right, will never die. They'll have eternal life. And this is what Jesus is saying right there. Look, he actually says this. I have come down from heaven. Now, remind me once again, what is the charge that they're prosecuting Jesus with uh, right before he goes to the cross? What's the charge? He's proclaiming to be God. That's it. He's proclaiming nothing else. Just this man says that he's God. Was he God? I believe wholeheartedly that he was God. Now, let's go back to that uh, Isaiah 9, 6, and let's see what's next here. And the government will be upon his shoulders. We should all give a big clap. Woo-hoo! Sooner or later, this is, right? Because we're nauseated, right? We're, we're, just, we're seeing what's going on, and it's so sickening what we see, right? But when we look at this and look at this right now, The kingdom of God is is here in this world, and we don't see it in its full effect. But you know what? After the seven years, the rapture of the church, seven years of tribulation, after the end of the seven years of tribulation, we enter into, anybody remember what that is? The millennial reign of Christ, a 1,000-year reign of Christ. And Jesus is going to come back with his bride. Who's his bride? We're his bride. He's going to rule and reign. We're going to rule and reign with him across this world for a 1,000 years, and he is going to to rule in righteousness and he is going to be a just judge, right? He is going to, he is going to bring back righteousness um, into this world. Now, what's interesting right here that I want you guys to note, and, and we mentioned it last time that the Jews, they, when they studied their scriptures and especially even like Isaiah, they saw, they saw two messiahs. Uh, one Messiah was going to be one like this one. The government will be upon his shoulders and his name will be called. And then it talks about the greatness, verse uh, 7, of his government and peace. There will be no end. He'll reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From, uh, from that time on and forever, and the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish all this, about this great ruler who's going to come, clean up Israel, clean up Jerusalem, and then clean up Israel proper, and then continue to just expand, throw the yoke of Roman bondage off of them, right? Get all of that, and he's going to rule and reign the whole world through, uh, through Jerusalem, basically. And they saw that as one Messiah. But then they saw another Messiah. And, and it's the one whom God is going to allow to go onto a tree, Anyone who's hung on a tree, cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree. And we see this picture of crucifixion before crucifixion was even necessarily a thing. We see this idea of crucifixion. And so they saw two messiahs, one that's going to be this everlasting king and this other messiah that's going to come and die. Now, do you see they had a hard time? How can our messiah reign forever and yet die, right? They're like, no brainer, that can't happen. Can it happen? And it has happened. And he is going to come and rule and reign one day. It's still yet to come. Now, this is the good news for us. We look at that phrase, the government will be on his shoulders. And what that means is government is rule. That's what that that word means there. Ruling is going to be all on his shoulders. Is that good news for us? That's good news for us. The difference for him, and, and I want us to be careful to not be too critical of politicians. Because you and I don't know how we would be. If we were steeped in that situation, there's a lot of power, there's a lot of money, there's a lot of influence. By the way, if when you're a senator or Congress, you have a pen that you wear when you're in D.C. And when you walk down the hallways, you know what everybody does? 
they see that pin on you, they part. They part. I remember hearing the senator from Kentucky, I can't remember his name, but a solid, solid man. And he was talking about that feeling that when you walk through a state capitol and there's just people in the hallways, they move out of your way. They step out of the elevator and let you get on. It's basically almost like a king type of a deal. And he says, it's, it's, he said, that rush of euphoria that everybody's moving because you're walking down the hallway, he said, it's intoxicating. It's intoxicating. He understands. But here's the deal. This one here, this child, the government will be on his shoulders. He's not ruling for himself. He's not ruling for his own gain. What did he do for his subjects? He died for them. He loves his subjects. And what he does in his kingdom, it's for his subjects, not for himself. That's complete opposite of you and me. Complete opposite of politicians. Typically, we're living for ourselves. Politicians, a lot of times, they're living for themselves, right? And what's going to happen? Just corruption, right? Should we be shocked? No. But should we embrace what day, one, one day what is to come? Absolutely so. And the government will be um, upon his uh, shoulders. And his name will be called from Handel's Messiah. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Now, that word wonderful right there, it means this, incomprehensible. Can't comprehend. Or another synonym, synonym is extraordinary or hard to understand. Remember when Jesus would teach and he would teach them and, and actually at one point they said, you know, this is a hard thing to accept. But at other times they would hear his teaching and it says they were capital A what? They were amazed for nobody had ever taught like this before. He'd come on the scene and say, you have heard it said. You've heard it taught this away from your rabbis and teachers, but I tell you, and he spoke as one who had what? As, a, as one who had authority. And he is wonderful because um, he is, it is extraordinary the ways in which he works. It's completely outside of our frame of understanding, right? Um, we, give, we have a scenario. We give God three options um, to fix a situation, and God chooses option number four, right? Because we're so limited in our understanding. Now, that's the word wonderful. I want you to look at the word counselor. And I want you to think about this and chew on this one for a little while. He's going to be a wonderful counselor. Now think about this idea of counselor. Uh, John chapter 14 and John chapter 16 really deal with the idea of this counselor. In John chapter 14, Jesus says, when I leave, I will send another. He will be an advocate, right? The parakletos. So what's an advocate or a counselor? Well, our modern term for that would be lawyer. He's going to be our lawyer. And what do lawyers do for you? They defend, they defend you, right? They defend you. And our counselor, here's the great thing about Jesus. When you and I are dealing with the situation, compared to God, how much of the situation do we see and understand? At best, we can see backwards a little bit, right? We can see a little bit of time going backwards. Do we have the ability to see forward? No, we can make guesses, but do we have the ability to see forward? No. Now think about this for a moment. We have this counselor. We have Jesus, who now he is eternal. So how much does he see? Okay, think about this for a moment. 
He sees your whole life, your past, and your future. When you make a decision today, he knows, how the, he knows what kind of fruit that's going to produce in your life, whether it's good or bad fruit. Think about it. He already knows your whole life, right? So now, is he capable? Is he the one that we should be stepping back? And whenever he says, let's not pursue that road. You think that's pretty wise? Because he knows, bad fruit. But what if you're going down a path and he says, keep pursuing, keep going down that path. You're on the good path, keep going. Can we trust him that we're on the good path, keep going? Because he sees our actions today. Do you and I, typically we don't give much thought about our actions today and what it's going to produce tomorrow. But he sees not only tomorrow, next month, next year, next decade, he sees the very end of our lives. And he can say, this will be beneficial This will not be beneficial. Now, is he not a good counselor? Yeah. Is he not the best counselor? Because he already knows it all. So now, would it be wise of us to seek his counsel? How often? For every single thing in our lives. He gives, he doesn't just give counsel. He gives the absolute perfect counsel. There's no better counsel than the counsel that he gives us. His counsel, you might note, it never, ever fails. Let's look at a couple verses here in regards to this. Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16 says, this is what the Lord says. I love this verse in Jeremiah. I've taught through Jeremiah a couple times, maybe three for sure too. And I love the book of Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says, stand at the crossroads and look. Pause. You ever been there in your life? Like, where do I go? You know, it's just like you're right there, kind of at a crossword, crossroads in life. You, you know what you ought to do, but you don't really have an unction to do that. You know what you ought not to do, but you're kind of just like, well, why not? You know, kind of just life. Just go. Staying at the crossroads and look. And next word, ask. Ask for the ancient paths. Don't just be stepping back saying, oh, God, just give me a feeling Give me a hair on my arm that raises up and points me in the direction I'm supposed to go. Ask the Lord for ancient paths. And look, ask where the good way is. Right? Is the, is the answer there waiting for you? What do you got to do? Ask where the good way is. And then, next phrase is what? Got to walk in it. I was reminded yesterday... My, my good buddy, A.W. Tozer, I meet him one day, roughly paraphrasing him here, quoting him. Uh, it's, um, he said, spiritual growth does not happen by learning more. It happens by applying more. And I think I just said it within the last week. Our major problem in our Christian walk is not that we need to learn more. It's that we just need to apply more of what we've already learned. Does that make sense? Would you guys agree with that? Yeah. What if your children just applied everything that they've been taught, right? Then they'd be perfect, just like their parents, right? Um, so here we have the wonderful counselor. Um, next verse was this Psalm 25 and 3. And it says, no one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. You guys hear me referencing this all the time. You will never be ashamed of following his counsel. And I can tell you with most certainty, there will probably be some shame and embarrassment when you follow your own counsel or counsel from somebody else in this world. 
But when you follow him, you will never be ashamed of following him. Wow, that's good, huh? We all have some shame in our lives, don't we? We also have some, boy, I wish I didn't have to go, wish I didn't go through that thing in my life or I wish I didn't have that hanging. But that's why the goodness of our Lord and Savior is though your sin be a scarlet, they will be what? As far as the east is from the west, I will what? Remember your sins no more. But shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. And I love the idea here. Shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. Meaning that, you know, somebody chooses a foolish action in their life. And you're like, why did you choose that? I, I don't know. Was there any reason for cho- No, just did it without cause, right? But you will never be put to shame for putting your hope and following and trusting him. You'll never find anywhere in scripture where Jesus was wrong. Now, uh, back over to the Isaiah 9, 6, it tells us that he's not only the wonderful counselor, but he is the mighty God. Um, uh, he's the mighty God. And this means that he has all power. In Jeremiah, I believe in Isaiah, that, that God talks about, he says, you take these little stones, or you take these pieces of wood, you carve eyes in them, but they, you give them ears, but they cannot you give them mouths, but they cannot. You give them feet, but they cannot. He says, and this is what you call your God. This is what you give your life to. And he says, but I'm God Almighty. I have all power, all might, or authority. The things that you, the things that you follow, they have no power and might. But he is, Jesus is, our mighty God. Scripture tells us that All things were made by him and for him. He sustains all things, scripture says, that atom, the atom in your body, all of the atoms in your body, we don't quite know what really holds it all together. It's kind of like this mystery force that's going on there. And it says he holds all things together by his powerful word. That's why in Revelation, when we see the idea of this, this or, or we see uh, prophecy tells us that the idea of, of this world just being burned up, and then being recreated. Just the atoms are let go. We, now we know what splitting atoms will do, don't we? We've learned that on a very small scale. What about when Jesus just lets go of the atoms of this world? Just, it just consumes. It's just consumed with fire there. He has all power to create. He has all power to sustain. And guys, he has all power to move mountains in your life, right? Um, he's the mighty God. And, and I think about um, Thomas. What's Thomas known for in the Bible? Okay. Um, how horrible to go down in eternity as Doubting Thomas, right? That's my middle name, by the way. How horrible, right? Can you imagine being, that being linked to your name, <laughs> For all of eternity, right? Doubting Robbie, right? I mean, and people are like, hey, are you doubting Robbie? Yes, right? Uh, Kind of a deal. That would be horrible. But you remember that once Jesus was resurrected and, and Jesus finally showed himself to Thomas, First time Thomas wasn't there and they told him all about it. And Thomas like, ah, I'll believe it if I see it. So Jesus appears to Thomas and he says, Tommy, go ahead and put your, your hands and my nail-scarred hands, and go ahead and put your, your hand in my side and pull it out. I want you to know that it's, that it's real. And do you remember what Thomas said? My Lord, my God. And he proclaimed to him as his mighty God, the one who's overcome the grave. 
Do you remember, by the way, the, uh, the soldier that was there? I can't remember if he's a centurion or not, so we'll just call him soldier. At Jesus' cross, remember what he said? Surely this is what? Surely this is the Son of God. So that's wonderful counselor, mighty God. How about this everlasting Father? Now, I need you guys to know that in the Jewish culture, their idea of father is a little bit different than ours. We, we think of father, we think of dad. When they think of father, they think of source, right? So any uh, Lenny uh, Ben Eddie, that Eddie is the source of Lenny, right? That the father is the source of that child's life right there. And, and so this idea here is that he is the everlasting source or he is the source of that which is eternal or source of eternity. And to be able to give eternal life, you have to what? You have to have eternal life. Let's look at a couple verses there on that. John eight fifty eight. It says, very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, what? <laughs> I am. Just blew the heads off of these people like, bah, 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 bah. and they're like, he's only 30 years old. How can you say that you're older than Abraham? But what's he doing right here? Before we saw that he was proclaiming, right, that he had come from heaven. Now what's he proclaiming right here? He's proclaiming that he's eternal, isn't he? And who's the only one the Jews knew? There's only one who's eternal. And who was that? God the Father. And Jesus is saying, I'm eternal. So if he's eternal, that means he's what? That means he's God. Next, uh, next verse was Isaiah 26 and 3. Oh, sorry. Well, we're not going there. Sorry. Good job, Carrie. Um, the, last, the last phrase that we want to go with here is Prince of Peace. So he's the everlasting Father. Okay? So he's eternal, right? And the last phrase here is Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. And he's the Prince of Peace. When you think of peace, there's a lot of different areas of peace that Jesus brings into our life. But the most important area of peace is he reconciles that enmity or that war that we have with God. Okay? There is this warring that is going on right here. And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to bring peace. He's going to settle the dispute between God and man. And when he does that, he brings peace. And mankind no longer fears the wrath of God. Mankind is no longer fears. If I step out of line, God's going to get me kind of a deal because he brings this peace. It is a settled action in our lives. And then through all that, once we grow and mature and we start to grow and mature, we start applying that peace into several different areas of our life and saying, you know what? He's the everlasting father. He's the mighty God. He's the prince of peace. He's the counselor, right? He's not just a counselor. He's the wonderful counselor. When I follow him, when I follow the wonderful counselor, what happens in that vein of our life? We have what? We have peace. Now, what happens if we're not following his counsel and we're choosing to go outside of that? Are we ever going to have peace in that matter? Never going to have peace. It'll be worry. It'll be strife. It'll be frustration. It'll be depression. It'll be destruction. And this is what Isaiah 26 verse 3 tells us. You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. And what, who's the author of that right there? Isaiah, isn't it? And look what Isaiah is talking about the Savior. That when somebody trusts in him, 
a mark of their life in trusting in him, the more they trust, the more peace they have in their life. The less they trust, the less peace they have. But the more peace they have, look, you will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Next verse is this, Isaiah 26 and 12. It says, Lord, you establish peace for us. He's the one who, who establishes it. All that we have accomplished, you have done for us. And what the person understands is this. Who I am and what I am, I am because of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I am because of the baby that was born fully flesh, fully God, who then could become a sacrifice for my sin. The last verse, in, or second to the last verse, John 14 and 27 tells us this. One of my favorites, peace I leave with you. By the way, that John 14, uh, earlier in that chapter, this is right at the end of uh, John chapter 14, earlier in that chapter, this is where he promises the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the parakletos, to guide them. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give. Hmm. I want you to note that phrase there, my peace. He's saying, I am giving you not just your peace. I'm giving you my peace. Do you guys think Jesus was a man of peace? A man, let me say a man at peace. Yeah. And you ever thought about why? It's because he understood his life was in his father's hands. How many times did he say, I only do that which I, I only say that which my father says. I only do that which I see my father do, right? He would say, I'm here accomplishing my father's work. He, did he know he would go to a cross and die? Yeah, he absolutely, before his ministry started, he knew that that was what, that was going to be, that, that that was going to happen in his life. But yet he had peace. And even when he was praying in the garden, Father, if there's any other way for mankind to be saved, was there any other way? No. Had to be one of like kind who was sinless. It took fully flesh and fully what? And fully God. It's the only perfect sacrifice. That's our baby Jesus, right? Much more than just presents, trees, and, you know, flashing lights and so forth and stockings. So much more than all of that. Peace, uh, I, leave, uh, I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. I need you guys to understand. Read the rest of this. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Guys, right now, as you notice what's going on in the world... I want you to memorize this verse. Don't, let, don't be troubled about what's going on. I don't know why people are so shocked that things are in chaos. Did we not know that this must happen, right? In order for the end times to really get roaring up, why are we so shocked and surprised at the decisions and the ways that people are asking or acting? But don't let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid because he says this, I give you my peace. And what that means is my life is in the Father's hands. On the cross, what does he say? Yeah, into your hands I commit my my spirit. Father, you have always had me here. Take me kind of a deal. And when you come to a point in your life where you understand that I, it is a joy in my life to live out the Father's will for me, boy, you've got solid direction there. You've got some good counsel going on, and you've got peace about it. And even if the attack comes in, can you still have peace? 
Even if the devastation comes in, you still have peace because you're like, I'm right smack dab in the middle of where God wants me to be. Even though things in my life are crumbling down, as long as I'm still in the center of God's life, I, I have absolute peace in my life because I know my Lord, I know my Savior, I know my God, and I know that he loves me beyond anything else. And that brings us to our last verse. You may be familiar with this one. For God so loved the world that he what? That same word gave there is just like this. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And this is kind of the New Testament echoing of the Isaiah chapter 9. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. To us a son is given. Does that sound familiar to you guys? You guys linking that there? To us a son is given. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. That whosoever would believe in him. Believe what? Fully man, right? Not just a, not just an eminence or a woo kind of a Scooby Doo thing, but that believes that he was fully man, fully God, perfect sacrifice for my greatest need, which is my sin, right? And guys, that's what this is all about. This is what Christmas is about: the the Savior, my Savior, coming to die for my sin. That's what Christmas is about. It's going to be born of a virgin, right? Prophesied, right? Born of a virgin. Keep reading your Isaiah there. Born of a virgin coming into the world. And now we see throughout scripture all the things that were prophesied about him then coming to fruition in and through his life that whoever would believe in him would not perish but would have what? Eternal life. Because he's the what again? The everlasting father. Guys, this is about your sin. This is about my sin. This is about our sin. This Christmas celebration, please understand, don't kick this to the side and go back to, oh, it's just about presents and trees and, you know, mysterious things and blah, blah, blah kind of a deal. This is about your sin, our sin, and this is about our Savior. Praise the Lord. I pray that in your mind you can create a partition. Like on a hard drive, we create partitions. I hope you can create a partition from the celebration of your Savior and the holiday of Christmas. I think it is deeply needed in our lives that we understand that these two things are not mutually inclusive, that these two things are actually quite different. The holiday of Christmas and the celebration of the birth of the one who would die for our sins. Amen? Lindsay,